and welcome to Madison's Notes, the official podcast of Princeton University's James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions. I'm your host, Annika Nordquist. Our guest today is Tyler Goodspeed, the Kleinheinz Fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. From 2020 to 2021, Dr. Goodspeed worked in the White House as the acting chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors. In that capacity, he advised the administration's economic response to the coronavirus pandemic. Before joining the council, Dr. Goodspeed was a member of the Faculty of Economics at Oxford University, where he specialized in financial history. At a time of such great economic insecurity and when questions about what's happened and what's coming next abound, I'm really excited to draw on Tyler's expertise and historical knowledge today. And with no further ado, let's dig in. Tyler, welcome to the show. Great to be with you. So I'm really excited to have you today. I think economics is really at the top of a lot of people's minds right now. Uh, But I want to start with a topic that is particularly at the forefront um, of the conversation today, which is inflation. But just sort of starting from a broader perspective, I think most people know roughly what inflation is, that you see something at the store. Last week was $3, now it's 6 and your paycheck probably hasn't doubled in that amount of time. But on a broader level, um, what is actually happening to the American economy right now? And without wading into these debates about, oh, what counts as a recession and what doesn't, What's what's actually the state of affairs and what does the fact that we're seeing 8.5% inflation really mean? Great, uh, great set of questions there. And yes, yeah, so at, at 8.5% inflation, that's come down a little bit from just mm-hmm. a couple months ago when we were over 9%. And that is the highest level of inflation that we've seen in the United States since, since the, the end of the great inflation of the 1970s. And I think what's happened over the past year and a half is that we had a combination of a huge increase in demand Mm. uh, stimulated in large part by a a, a government stimulus in March 2021 that was equal in size to about 10% of the Mm. annual output of the United States economy. And so there was just a huge increase in demand beginning in, in March 2021 and in fact, in, in that month alone, demand for goods in the United States, so physical stuff, increased month over month by mm-hmm. 10%, a little over 10%. That's a, that's a 240% yeah. annual rate of growth in demand for goods. So that's that's a lot. Yeah. At the same time, we had a supply side of the U.S. economy, an ability to produce stuff that was still somewhat impaired because of the pandemic. Uh, we heard a lot about supply chain issues and yeah. pork- and also a lot of people had left the, the, the labor force during the pandemic and hadn't yet come back. So you had this big mismatch between mm-hmm. uh, supply and demand. And as a result, prices went up. And I think they're continuing to go up in part because this continued for so long that it has started to get embedded in people's expectations of, mm-hmm. of what is going to be. That is a really interesting observation. So I guess since you're an economic historian, I am kind of wondering, I hear very often people compare compare the current situation to the Carter years, um, but I do kind of wonder, I mean, one, how accurate is that comparison? Is that just sort of the most recent time that there was this much inflation or is there some kind of deeper comparison to be seen there? And second, do you think 
that there are other historical examples which maybe shed more light or a different kind of light on, on the current situation? Yeah, so I, I, I think that the, the decade you mentioned, the 1970s, is the appropriate historical analog. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's actually sort of two parts or two phases. So there's the latter half of the 1960s, which was when we also had a lot of government stimulus, right. the government spending. Uh, the supply side of the U.S. economy was was kind of maxed out because uh, it was in the context of war. So labor right. force participation was super high among prime age workers, particularly prime age males. So there wasn't much spare capacity in the mm -hmm. U.S. economy uh, when there was all this demand. And so in the latter half of the 1960s, oh, and, you know, we had these big, these big uh, bills, uh, such as such as the establishment of, of Medicaid. Right. Um, so now there's a big uh, there's a Medicare Medicaid. So there's a big increase in demand for healthcare services, mm -hmm. um, some other great society programs that were in, implemented under the Johnson administration. So you have a lot of government fueled demand, and the Fed sort of let that happen. That prices started going up, and they would say, "Well, this is this is a transitory mm -hmm. thing." They, you, know, you would say this is temporary, this is transitory. If you strip this out, then inflation is not right. such a big problem. And in the meantime, inflation expectations uh, started to incorporate that, that you know, inflation is going up, people start right. expecting it to go up. Um, and then in the 19, in 1973, 74 was when we have uh, a war in the Middle East and a big oil price shock as a result of mm. an oil embargo by OPEC members. And so you have this sort of one-two punch that first inflation expectations rise in, in the 1960s and they become unanchored, we like to say, in the late 1960s. And then you have this big supply shock that hits mm. in the mid-1970s. And I think we've sort of seen a compressed rerun of that, mm. that we had inflation rise and inflation expectations come unanchored in 2021 Right. And then on top of that, we get a, another supply shock in 2022 with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Right. Interesting. Yeah, that is a really, really deep parallel, especially with the oil. And what's interesting is we've, you know, another act, another similarity is you mentioned oil, also food. Yeah. So yeah. I was going to ask about that. One of the big drivers of, of inflation in the, in the 1970s right. was, was food price inflation. And we had a sort of a food inflation problem food price inflation problem, even before we had an energy price inflation problem in uh, in the in early mid-1970s. Mm. And I'm interested because you mentioned kind of the role of the Fed in that, which is something else that we're seeing a lot of conversation about right now, because um, traditionally the job of the Fed is to control inflation. Um, and I'm curious, I mean, one, if you could comment kind of on what the Fed has been doing to address inflation um, and why we haven't really seen much progress yet. And second, I think people tend to be very quick to blame the Fed about this, but I'm wondering how much you think of this is really the fault of the Fed, um, given obviously, I don't think that they would have handled the situation perfectly, but at the same time, there's just been a lot of government spending and, and were they just dealt bad cards in the first place? Yes, I think they, they were put in a difficult situation by the, the magnitude mm -hmm. of the government spending, the deficit yeah. finance government spending. 
uh, that happened in 2021. And you know, when yeah. when that stimulus was passed in March 2021, it wasn't in isolation. Consumers were right. already sitting on about 1.7 trillion dollars in above trend savings from past COVID right. relief packages. So then you pour another 1.9 trillion on top of that. Right. And so you have this this big excess of demand over supply. And the Fed should have, as inflation started to rise throughout 2021, well above the Fed's target of 2%, they should have moved to start uh, tightening financial conditions. Uh, they were still engaged in, I think it was $120 billion a month in purchases of U.S. Treasury bonds and mortgage-backed securities at a time when we had double-digit uh, home right. price appreciation, home price inflation. Right. So they were just the Fed just continued with their their foot on the pedal, you know, pedal mm -hmm. to the metal uh, throughout 2021, and now they're they're late to the game. And uh, and I think you know, to, if if inflation expectations have risen by you know 400 basis points, then you have to raise interest rates right. by at least 400 basis points if you're going to meaningfully cool the economy. So I think the Fed is is playing catch up. Mm, interesting. And they've caught a lot of flack because recently Jeremy Powell, the head of the Federal Reserve, um, called 2.5%, said that it was now the new neutral inflation rate. So I'm wondering if you can unpack that. I mean, first of all, what is a true neutral rate? Why is the statement getting so much flack? And is it possible to reset what neutral means? Good question. So I think it's, it's it's getting a lot of flack because there are a lot of assumptions that enter into two point five percent being neutral, and you know as when 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 inflation expectations have risen by as much as mm -hmm. they are they have, then I I, I think any rate that is going to be neutral is going to be a bit higher than that, and and yeah. furthermore, you if if you're going to bring inflation down then you've got to go above whatever you think neutral is. Right. And so I think those are some of the reasons why, why the Fed were taking a lot of flack for that, for that comment. Interesting. So in other words, because people are expecting the inflation to be so high already in order to say that it's going down, they have to predict it to be even higher. Am I understanding that correctly? Um, well, in order for to, to bring inflation down, what you need is higher after inflation interest rates mm. so because otherwise right now if inflation is running at eight percent okay and yeah. and financial markets are lending at five percent then that is a a negative three percent mm. real interest rate uh, which means sort of people are getting paid to borrow so that is still very stimulative mm. um and uh, so if people you know, people expect maybe, maybe the eight percent. Some of that is is transitory, is indeed transitory. So maybe you know, it's the, the people expect that inflation is going to be four percent. Um, well, if you're lending out at three percent, then your right. real rate is still negative one. So it's still stimulative. So I think that's that's the reason why why uh, the, the Fed is is behind the curve is because when inflation and inflation expectations have gone up mm -hmm. by as much as they have. Uh, and your interest rates haven't gone up by as much, then then you're still in stimulative territory. Right. Interesting. So I think 
We've talked a lot about government spending and, and how that has been the case in, in this level of inflation, both in the past and in the present. And the elephant in the room there is the so-called Inflation Reduction Act, uh, which people are talking a lot about now, um, and whether or not it really will reduce inflation. So I guess just to start, what do you think will be the impact of this bill on the economy if it passes? And what particularly in the bill do you think will be either helpful or unhelpful? So to be honest, I I, I don't see the bill doing much uh, to meaningfully mm-hmm. lower inflation. In fact, in the near term, it's probably going to elevate inflation because there are a lot of subsidies in there. Right. Subsidies for health insurance, subsidies for uh, green energy uh, and some you know subsidies subsidized demand and so in the near term i think that there there those those could be the effect is probably modest but could be somewhat inflationary yeah i think proponents of the bill point to increased tax revenue as being disinflationary down the road simply because you're 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 taking money out of the private sector mm-hmm. uh, now first of all i mm-hmm. I don't know that the composition of these tax cuts is going to be particularly disinflationary because they're basically proposing to tax corporations and and um, and and, big, and and buy share share repurchases and so I just don't see those as being and and also tougher IRS enforcement so I just don't see those as as removing mm-hmm. money from households and firms with a high propensity to consume uh, and you know. Increased tax revenues are kind of only disinflationary if the government's propensity to spend right. an additional dollar is less than households' propensity to spend an additional dollar. And I don't think that the record of the past 50 years it would be consistent with that. Can, can we back up and can you talk me through that? Why is it the case that that the government has to be able has to less be able to spend than than households for that to be the case? So if you want to cool or lower demand, then the idea behind tax hikes is, look, we're going to lower demand because we're going to take a dollar out of the the pocketbooks of consumers. And so they're not Mm going to spend it. Therefore, there'll be less aggregate demand in the economy and and there'll be some disinflationary pressure. Mm. But if the government is merely taking that dollar from a household and then they're spending it themselves. Right. Then you haven't you haven't done anything right, to demand. Right. You've simply changed the composition of demand. Now it's now it's government spending instead of consumer spending. Interesting. So I'm I wonder also if you can comment a little, um, because so Larry Summers, um, who's a very esteemed economist on the left, who has traditionally been against the the Biden stimulus. Um, reportedly um, was a a main force in convincing Senator Manchin to support this bill. Um, So why do you think, like, in that particular case, he's helping push for it, whereas in the past he's he's been against stimulus? I think it's two things. One is that there are policies in there that have been priorities of Right. Members of the Democratic Party. Right. Particularly pertaining to to drug pricing and pertaining to green subsidies. And I think Larry also has a a traditional Keynesian view Mm -hmm. of of tax changes that if you 
you remove money from households and businesses, uh, then that in a sort of simple hydraulic sense is going to be, it's going to lower demand and, and therefore lower inflation. But I think that misses the point that I just made right. about, about, you know, government gets that extra dollar and they spend it. Right. Um, then you're just changing the composition of demand. You're not really doing much to decrease it. Yeah, that's a, a really interesting observation. And I guess on, on a broader level, this is an administration that has talked so much about equity. Um, and I'm wondering, as we're seeing all this inflation and as the Inflation Reduction Act will potentially be increasing that inflation, at least in the short term, do you think that this inflation is being equally spread among people of all levels of income? Um, do you think it's going to affect everyone the same way? And, and which groups is it going to affect worse than others? Yeah, so one, one of the pernicious one of the many pernicious aspects uh, or one of the many yeah. pernicious features of inflation is that it doesn't affect all parts of the economy or all participants in the economy simultaneously or equally. And, yeah. you know, the experience of the 1970s is that lower income workers do tend to struggle to keep pace with inflation uh, because they don't have the bargaining power that some other workers have in, in, in right. terms of being able to negotiate higher wages. And so we saw real wages decline for much of the 1970s because wage contracts tend to be negotiated uh, less frequently than a lot of other prices change. And energy prices, for example, are, are changed quite frequently. And, and workers struggle uh, to, to keep pace with those, those, those price increases. And we've seen that in the yeah. past year and a half. So after accounting for inflation, uh, real wages for the average American worker have declined pretty substantially over the past year and a half. And uh, in terms of yeah. in terms of who benefits, I mean, few people benefit. I mean, if you have a lot of debt that was borrowed in the past, you know, the real value yeah. of that debt is now going to be less. So it kind of it can help. Uh, it can help debtors. And of course, who is the biggest debtor in the world? It's the United States federal government. So the government kind of benefits uh, from from increased inflation. Yeah. Um, all, and then in terms of, but a lot of investors lose, um, and you know, it it does tend to also hurt renters, people who don't own their mm -hmm. own home more, because uh, the a home is is a good inflation hedge. Um, but if you're if you're renting from from month to month, uh, those, right. those those rents are going up with inflation. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And I kind of wonder, in terms of the long-term projection about inflation, I was taught in Economics 101 that inf like mild inflation is good for the economy and deflation is sort of bad across the board. So in the long term, are we hoping that prices will kind of lessen and, and return somewhat to the levels they are before? Or when we see the price of something at the grocery store increase by $1, are we sort of expecting, like we're hoping that it'll only increase by 10 cents or 30 cents or whatever the next month? Good question. And I think the, the experience of the interwar years in the 1920s mm. and 1930s suggests that you know, periods of outright deflation can be very difficult yeah. to navigate because it means that the real value of debt is going up. That can make servicing the debt more much more costly. 
Right. And then you can get a lot of defaults and bank failures. And so, the, you know, that's, that's, a, that's dangerous territory. Yeah. I think what we, I, I think what the Fed would like to see would be inflation, the rate of inflation, the rate of change in prices going from the current eight and a half percent back down to their target of, of 2%, which is what they define as, as price stability right. is prices going up on average by, by 2% a year. Um, that's, you know, there's a long distance. Yeah. There's a big distance between eight and a half yeah. and 2%. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's a really interesting segue because I would love to ask you more questions about your backgrounds in economic history. And in particular, you focused on some kind of interesting and unusual subtopics in the past, particularly banking in 18th century Scotland and financing during the Irish potato famine. Um, and I'm wondering, I mean, particularly given our COVID recovery, uh, which also, as you've kind of alluded to, we've dealt with a lot of food instability, though, of course, on a much lesser scale than the Irish potato famine. Do you see any kind of lessons from those periods that that we can be drawing to today? Well, one of the reasons that I have visited uh, different periods of economic history and, mm -hmm. and different places in economic history has been that sometimes you observe financial markets actually helping mm -hmm. individuals and businesses to adjust right. to adverse shocks. And so I think that, so, you know, for example, I have a, a book and a paper on on how the access to small right. loan credit actually facilitated adjustment to the arrival of blight in, in Ireland and where you had access to credit. We saw a lot of these non-demographic adjustments occur sooner and to a greater right. extent than where there wasn't access to credit. Um, and so that's actually one reason why in, in 2020, certainly there were a lot of, it was a priority of, of fiscal and monetary policy right. to ensure that there was a continued flow of right. credit uh, throughout throughout U.S. markets to make sure that businesses and enterprises and, and financial institutions had access to, to, to working credit in order, working capital in order to, to, to continue to function. Interesting. And I guess, so I also, one other thing that I find really interesting about your background is you're a specialist, not only in the history of economics, but more specifically in the history of finance. Um, and that's an area in particular where I think a lot of people don't immediately see the connection between the health of financial markets and overall economic growth. And people can think of colloquial examples, particularly the stock market crash that caused the Great Depression. But in practice, there's a lot of hatred toward Wall Street um, and a lot of resentment that it feels like Republican policy tends to be more skewed towards helping Wall Street. Um, and that kind of resentment stems, I think, from higher salaries and that people don't necessarily see a big benefit to society um, from selling stock and sometimes from just sort of helping, you know, government involvement, I guess, in financial markets as a whole. Um, so I guess what I'm wondering is when you look at history, why is it that most people should care about the health of financial markets? And can you talk me through the relationship between the health of financial markets and the overall health of the economy? Yeah. So, so first of all, there's there's an empirical observation yeah. that has been replicated in multiple studies that you look across countries and over time and 
countries with higher levels of financial yeah. development, more more sophisticated and, and I'd say deeper, more liquid financial markets tend to have higher levels of income and, and higher growth rates. And then there's the sort of theoretical reason of reasons yeah. of why that might be. And I think it's because you know, financial institutions are are doing several are performing several important functions for the economy. Arguably the, the most important is what's called credit intermediation. Mm -hmm. So at any given time you have households and firms that are consuming some of their income or spending some of their income, but also saving some of their income. And at the same time, you have other households and other firms that have spending needs or investment needs that exceed their income and, and their available savings. So what financial institutions are able to do is they're able to match you know, savings mm -hmm. with investment opportunities. Right. And that's a really important function because for a lot of big investment projects, I mean, think about you know, building a new factory or, right. or constructing a new port. Those are big outlays that exceed the available savings of most enterprises. And, and that's that's why or that, that that's why financial institutions are really important for for providing that additional volume of capital to help get those investment projects uh, underway. Um, financial institutions also engage in in risk reallocation, mm -hmm. uh, moving risk, shifting risk from where it is less from, from those who are less able and less willing to bear risk to where to those who are more willing and more able to, to bear risk. Now sometimes this isn't done perfectly. So for yeah. example, uh, in you know in the lead up to 2008, 2009, right. one area where we saw this risk reallocation was you know financial mortgage originators were selling the mortgages to uh, to banks. Uh, to, to, to the big uh, investment banks and the investment banks were packaging those mortgages together and then they were selling the resulting securities to uh, a lot of large investors who you know are going to be more willing and able to bear the the, the underlying mm -hmm. risk uh, that's just one example of, of where you have this sort of risk risk reallocation um, and then they also engage in in maturity transformation so that's you know a financial institution providing, a a short-term liquid liability and that's how they're funding themselves they're they're you know accepting deposits and they're using those those short-term liquid liabilities in order to invest in longer-term assets um, mm -hmm. things like commercial and industrial loans things like home loans uh, so those are you know those those are important functions of, yeah. of financial markets i guess kind of returning to covid because that See, my understanding was was one of the big issues with COVID is that like particularly a lot of small businesses had a really hard time um, adjusting the pandemic and a lot of stimulus went towards, you know, wound up, people wound up spending them at larger businesses that were able to offer lower prices. Um, do you think that enough has been done about that? Do you think that that was an issue? Um, so I, I, I think that it, the, the provisions in the CARES Act in 2020 were very much designed to target institute uh, businesses and households yeah. uh, that were 
likely to be more vulnerable. Yeah. Um, and so that's why the, the Paycheck Protection Program, which provided forgivable loans to um, small and medium-sized businesses, that, that was targeted towards smaller businesses, but you know, you do get some type one and type two errors uh, yeah. in, 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 with policy making, especially policy making in, in the middle of a crisis. And right. so I think a lot of people in Congress uh, in March, April 2020 felt that of the two risks, mm-hmm. risk one is we provide aid. We provide assistance to institutions or households that we subsequently learn didn't need it. Or risk two is we do not provide aid or assistance to businesses or households that subsequently we learn did need it. Right. And, And I think in the context of March 2020, Congress decided we're going to err more on the side of you know, giving giving assistance to households and, and businesses that, you know, maybe subsequently right. exposed, turns out they didn't need it. Right. Interesting. And I guess, you know, it raises kind of an interesting question because um, for, for all the trouble that we're in in our economy right now, it feels like we're sort of reaching a point where we can't even remember it having been good, you know, with the COVID instability and, and so many at this point consecutive years of, you um, of rapidly, you know, maybe maybe changing isn't the right word, but of like different kind of very invasive economic policies to deal with the the issues that have persisted and continued to come up over the course of the pandemic. And I'm wondering if you could kind of take me through kind of if you start at the beginning, because the original bills to deal with, as you mentioned, the CARES Act, those bills were all kind of still under President Trump. And I'm wondering, you know, I mean, one obviously you have to you have to make trade-offs and to what extent have kind of our original interventions persisted um in ways that were either helpful or unhelpful um and how has the Biden administration uh changed kind of the attitude or the types of interventions that were taking place under the Trump administration in your experience right so if we look at the the, the major provisions of the cares act there was assistance to business and in particular assistance mm-hmm. to business to help them hold on to employees, to help them hold right. on to workers. So the Paycheck Protection Program gave these forgivable loans, offered forgivable loans to firms, provided they use those lo- loans to maintain payrolls or other a few other uh, fixed costs. Right. We also had a check. And the reason there was that, you know, you want to, in order to facilitate a very speedy labor market recovery, you want to limit the separations of, of good matches between employers and employees. Right. Because we did anticipate that, that this, unlike the recession of 2008, 2009, the pandemic recession would be would be transitory. Right. You want to you want to prevent disruptions and separations right. that are are going to be needless. You know, if you just have a two right. month, month long shutdown. Another provision was that uh, we we sent aid to households uh, in the form of uh, economic impact payments, and we also sent aid in a very targeted way to households uh, in the form of supplemental federal unemployment insurance benefits. Uh, So that is targeting relief to people who lost employment. And the thinking there was, 
that consumer spending is at the end of the day, 70% of the United States economy. So mm -hmm. 22 million people losing their jobs all at once is potentially very serious for 70% of the US economy. And that's why there was, there was relief. Uh, there were transfer payments to households which had sun sunsets. Yeah. So the yeah. original unemployment insurance, the supplemental unemployment insurance benefits were originally due to sunset uh, in summer 2020. And they didn't have much of a disincentive on the return to work because in 2020, because for most of the period during which they were in place, a lot of the US economy was shut down. Right. But I think one of the mistakes of the Biden administration was to continue in 2021, hmm. policies that were appropriate for March 2020, but were no longer appropriate for March right. 2021. So if the pandemic recession officially ended in uh, April 2020, it does not then make sense to be sending out an additional uh, right. $1,400 check to households in March 2021 when you're almost 11 months into a recovery. And, right. and, and consumers are already sitting on $1.7 trillion in above trend savings. It also probably did not make sense to extend the supplemental federal unemployment insurance benefits until September 2021, mm. uh, because that is when you have a labor market that is recovering. Right. And that is when you want people to be going back to work um, rather than to be remaining on the sidelines or, or, or exiting the labor force, staying out of the labor force. So I think those were two, those were two yeah. policy things that were appropriate for 2020, but it was a mistake to, to extend them in 2021. Yeah. And I guess, could, could you dwell a little bit more on the state of the, the labor market right now? Because that's one that I've definitely seen in discussion a lot in the, the inevitable, are we in a recession? Does this count as a, re as a recession topic uh what what is happening to our labor market right now yeah so we have continued to have strong monthly job gains in 2022 uh, of about 400,000 mm. jobs a month and that that's that's very strong jobs growth we we just got back to the level of employment yeah. that prevailed on the eve of the pandemic in in February 2020 so that that's that was a, a pretty rapid recovery mm. for a labor market from just the, the worst decline in employment that we've ever seen mm. uh, in, in March and April 2020. And by the end of 2020, right. we had actually already recovered almost 60% of the jobs lost in those horrific months of, of March and April 2020. Mm. Uh, but we're still we're still a little bit below, we're still below where we should be if the US labor market had continued to grow, basically if there had been no pandemic. So if the U.S. labor market had continued to expand right. at the pace right. uh, at right. which it was expanding in, in 2019 and early 2020. So the, the labor market is, is still, you could say, recovering, uh, even though output in the U.S. economy is declining. And its output has declined in the U.S. economy for each of the past two quarters mm -hmm. and actually declined pretty substantially. I mean, this was the, the, the magnitude of the decline in U.S. output mm. in the first two quarters of 2022 was actually deeper than the recession of the early 2000s. It was deeper than uh, the recession of 1969-70. Of mm. It was deeper than a recession that we had in the early 1960s. So we have a labor market that still seems to be 
recovering well, uh, and then we have output is declining, uh, which would typically be associated with a recession. I think one way you can square that circle or make sense of that apparent disconnect is that inflation has gone up by so much more than wages that firms do mm-hmm. have a bit of an incentive to continue hiring or to try to hold on to workers because when inflation's at 8% or 9% and wage growth is at 4 or 5%, then it's actually cheaper today to hire workers than it was you know, six months or a year ago. So I think that's that's one reason why firms are probably holding on to uh, to, to labor uh, to to a greater extent than would otherwise be the case. Interesting. That's a really shocking fact that that people are that there are more people employed and yet we're producing vastly less than we were before. That's really really shocking. So yeah, so we see that in reflected in the productivity yeah. statistics. So basically, what is the real output per hour worked? And we had some pretty historic declines in productivity growth in in the first half of this year. Hmm. Interesting. Reflecting that that gap or reflecting that fact that output is going is declining at the same time that we're continuing to observe job growth. Hmm. How sustainable is that? Like, do do you think how likely is a scenario in which extraneous workers just get laid off versus you know, companies eventually find something for them to do and and it all winds up kind of being better than it would have been. Right. So, I mean, first, one interesting parallel to the 1970s is that we did see this similar pattern that Hmm. even after the start of a recession in the 1970s, we continued to see job growth. And I think Hmm. it was a similar dynamic then, namely that inflation was going up by more than wages. So there was an incentive to, to... hold off on laying off workers uh, for a while, you know, while you see you know, what, what is happening right. to the economy. So we did see some of that labor hoarding in the 1970s. Hmm. And in terms of likely dynamics, uh, there's still a big overhang of job openings because there were a lot of, of job openings in, in 2020, from the end of 2020 through 2021, uh, firms were not able to fill vacant jobs. So I think there's, given that that massive overhang of mm-hmm. job vacancies, I think we're going to continue to see uh, some firms try to fill those. Uh, mm-hmm. Other firms are first going to eliminate some vacancies, uh, remove some of those, those job listings, and then typically they, we would expect them to start to reduce hours and then we start to see layoffs. That's usually the typical pattern is that first you stop advertising new job openings, mm-hmm. then you start uh, reducing hours, and then and then you start uh, laying off workers. That's sort of the typical pattern during, during a recession. Interesting. Well, Tyler, we're almost at time. Uh, but just as one final question, we've talked about a lot in this interview. Uh, we've dwelt a lot, particularly on inflation. Uh, But in terms of our overall economic status, um, in the long term, what do you see as some of the greatest threats that are on the horizon that maybe people aren't discussing as much as the immediate hurt to their checkbook? Well, in in terms of shocks that really bring a period of prosperity to an end, I I think we all have Mm -hmm. to be very concerned about 
military conflict. Hmm. And, um, you know, so that, that in terms of big, big shocks, you know, I mean, that was, yeah. that was, uh, it, it was a very difficult economic period from, from 1914 through 1945. Right. So, I mean, I think that is a, that is a, a very big, uh, concern yeah. is, you know, non-trivial possibility uh, that we do get a major military conflict. I mean, we, we've had a, pretty substantial yeah. military conflict in just the past six months. And uh, and that has already had very profound implications for yeah. uh, global markets. Uh, and the, in terms of setting aside exogenous shocks like that, I, I think, you know, I am concerned about just the long run potential of the U.S. economy because productivity growth uh, has mm. was weak during much of the post-financial crisis period. It started right. to, to pick up in 2018, 2019 after historic tax reform in 2017, but productivity growth has been weak in the past decade or two. And you know, we just had a negative productivity growth in the first half of this year. And at the end of the day, uh, ultimately productivity growth is really, really important for sustained, robust economic mm. growth over the long term. Uh, so I, 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 I worry about that becoming a long-term secular trend mm. that we, we, we're not increasing our productivity as, mm. as much as we were during the during most of the, the post-1945 period. Uh, I mean, productivity growth in the, the, the 25 years after after World War II was about double what it's been in the past decade. Um, and also, you know, I worry about trends in labor force participation. So the labor mm. force participation rate uh, for U.S. workers is still substantially below what it was pre-pandemic. Mm. It's about a full percentage point or a little bit more than a full percentage point below where it was in February 2020. And that means fewer people working or actively looking for work as a percentage mm-hmm. of, of the U.S. population, and and you know that's that's a challenge for growth moving forward. Yeah, uh, you you need people, and you need uh, people becoming more productive. So uh, that's those are two big challenges, I think, to the long run potential growth of the U.S. economy. Yeah, yeah, and it's interesting that you bring up that last point uh, because we just had that whole conversation about the state of the labor market and the fact that there are fewer people even in the labor market is a really important caveat to it to its current strength and i also think it's such an interesting and uh thought-provoking note to end on discussing the ways in which economics uh can impact global events in a way so much broader than just what each individual brings back at the home of, of the workday mm-hmm. so thank you so much tyler it's a really interesting conversation thanks so much annika great questions Well, there you have it, Madisonians, Dr. Tyler Goodspeed on the state of our economy, inflation, and what is and isn't being done. Our website, as always, is jmp.princeton.edu. Our Twitter handle is at Madison Program, and you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Don't forget to press follow, and if the spirit moves, give us a review. Thank you so much for joining us, and I hope to see you next time here on Madison's Notes.